if it's your first time, looking at it seems to be full of uh, different stories and you're wondering how it is all connected. Well, I've spent uh, a good part of this week studying this chapter and I've come to see that Luke has intentionally and purposefully put these stories together and there is a, a very important message uh, in the way that he has arranged it and put it together. So we're going to be looking uh, at the chapter as a whole. And you're going to be needing your outline because I've tried to set out as helpfully as I can the, the structure. Okay, So nothing fancy, but to help you see uh, that there is a structure. And I'll talk more about that later. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who speaks, that you are a God who reveals your will and your word to your people. And so, Father, as you have gathered us here together like this, we pray that by the powerful working of your Spirit, would you please open up this passage, this uh, long passage, that you would feed us, that you would nourish us, that you would change our minds, affect our thinking, affect our hearts, and that our hands and will may be lifted up to serve you even more faithfully. So please, Father, have mercy on us and help us. Amen. So the first point there is from hearing to asking, verses 1 to 13. Now, it's, it's important that we recall just what happened before we got to chapter 11. <clears throat> and if you just uh, look with your eyes, just before the beginning of chapter 11, we have Martha and Mary, that famous story of Martha fretting that Mary didn't help her in the kitchen. And so Jesus responds in verse 41, Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, You are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. And the one thing, the only one thing needed, is that Mary has chosen to sit at the feet of Jesus, listening to his word. And what Luke wants us to understand, by putting that incident there, just after the parable of the Good Samaritan, is that, is that no one, no one can gain eternal life by fulfilling the law. See, that's the point of the parable of the Good Samaritan. It is too hard. Like those of you who were here last week listening to the sermon understood that, you know, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. And the standard of what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves, as Jesus explained in the parable, is too high. No one loves like this. To do so continually and consistently to everyone, no one can love like that. And so the pathway to eternal life is not, is not by keeping the law. The one thing, the only one thing needed is to sit at the feet of Jesus and listen and receive his life-giving word. The pathway to eternal life is doing that one thing. And so this, this theme continues into chapter 11, so that I believe the key verse of the chapter is verse 28. So look at verse 28. 
where Jesus says, Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and obey it. That's the key verse. Okay, so hopefully uh, knowing that will help us navigate through all these stories. So before we get to the key verse, we need to come back to our question of how the end of chapter 10 flows and connects into the beginning of chapter 11. And so the answer, see I've given you the answer. The answer is the first point in the outline. From hearing to asking. Because it is as we hear and receive the life-giving word of Jesus that we gain eternal life, that we gain access to God the Father, that we can come to Him in prayer. And so the disciples asked Jesus, teach us how to pray. And the very first thing that Jesus teaches them should shock us, should blow us away, because He said, when you pray, say, Father. Now we are so used to that, we take it for granted that it doesn't blow us away, but it should. Because he is telling sinful, rebellious creatures that you can call God Father. It is only as they and we have chosen to do the one thing needed of hearing and receiving the life-giving word of Jesus that we can come to God in prayer and address Him as Father. And because we have been given this access to God, God, Jesus tells us now, is so inclined to us, He's so biased towards us in a good way that in verse 13, Jesus says, comparing human fathers to the Heavenly Father, if you then, as an earthly father, though you are evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children. And this is the point. How much more, how much more your Father in heaven will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. Because we have been given this access to God, we are now told that God is eager. God is willing and eager to give us the greatest gift of all. Himself. There is no gift better than God Himself. And, and verse 13, Jesus is saying, God is eager and willing to do that. Give us Himself in the form of His Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Because He is so, so inclined to us, He is so biased towards us, because we have received the life-giving Word of Jesus and have become His people. And these are things we take for granted, don't we? being able to call God Father and having the reality of His Spirit dwelling in us. It's things we take for granted, but it's actually a great privilege. A great privilege that comes not from anything that we have done, but only because of what Christ has done for us and that we have received His life-giving Word. So Luke continues from there and puts right after that uh, episode uh, what must be the shortest miracle uh, in the whole Bible. And that's recorded for us in verse 14. And it's shortest because it only takes one verse to record it. Verse 14. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. 
Now, I want to tell you two important things about this uh, miracle. And the first one is that Luke puts this here. He records this here because he wants us to see the connection between this event and what he's been telling us. Okay, That's number one, the connection. Number two, Luke's emphasis is not on the miracle itself because that takes one verse only. His emphasis is actually on the wrong responses that the crowds make to the miracle. And that takes 21 verses. So one verse, 21 verse, very clearly. Luke's emphasis is on the crowd's wrong response and how Jesus responds to their wrong response. So if you look at the outline, that's what I've tried to um, put down and show you all. Because after the shortest miracle, Luke records for us two wrong responses. So you have wrong response number one, and then wrong response number two. And after each, Jesus both refutes and warns. So you can see that in your outline. And right in the middle, between the two responses and Jesus refuting and warning, right in the middle is our key verse of 27 and 28, where Jesus says, Blessed are those who hear and obey the word of God. And so this is the way Luke has structured it. And so we're going to look at uh, the wrong response number one, verse 15. So after Jesus cast out that demon, crowd number one with wrong response number one said, verse 15, but some of them said, by Beelzebub. Who is Beelzebub? Well, Luke tells us, the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So you see, they witness the miracle. But they cannot deny the miracle. Because power has been displayed. And so what do they do? Because they can't deny it. Because very clearly, miracle has been performed. Power has been displayed. And so instead, they charge Jesus of using the devil's power. Yes, power has been displayed. But it is not of God. It is of the devil. He is using the devil's power. Now friends, I think it is noteworthy that the enemies of Jesus, all they could do was to deny the source of his power. You see, there are people who are against Jesus and if they could ever prove that his miracles were a hoax or you know, it, it didn't really happen, they would have done so. But no record. You see, in terms of the ancient documents that have survived from the first century to us now, there is no record in the Bible or anywhere else of any of Jesus' enemies claiming that he did not do it. Because they can't. Because it happened and it was too plain for everyone to see. So all they could do was to say that, yes, it is not from God, but from the devil. So Jesus refutes. Verse 17 to 22. Now we only have time to briefly look at Jesus' logic here. And he is appealing to logic and common sense. Verse 17. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. Fact. Logical, right? Self-explanatory, right? And yet, and yet, why, 
why couldn't they see that? Right before they, they shoot off their big mouth and say, oh, it's of the devil. Why couldn't they see that? How can it be from the devil? The devil is not stupid. The devil has, uh, has read Sun Tzu's Art of War. He knows you don't attack your own. Well, Jesus gives us a hint. What is behind their ridiculous and illogical accusation? When he says in verse 20, verse 20, But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. Now this term, the, the finger of God, first appears in the Old Testament book in Exodus chapter 8. And you remember uh, there in the part of the Bible, God is rescuing his people out of Egypt and he sends a plague after plague on Egypt. And the first two plagues, the now water turning into blood, and the second plague is frogs. Okay, The first two plagues, the Pharaoh's magicians are able to replicate in a small way, like in a small way, they, you know, a small bowl they turn from water to blood and they replicate you know, the, the, the frogs. In a small way, Pharaoh's magicians are able to do that by their secret arts. But when the third plague of the gnats come, you know, these pests, you know, wow, like dust coming, coming, they are not able to. Pharaoh's magicians, by their secret arts, were not able to. And so they say to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. This is God acting. This is God showing his power. And the verse continues and tells us, But Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen. So even though he saw for himself his magicians couldn't do it and the magicians themselves testified, This is the finger of God. His heart became hard. And so you see, Jesus is giving us the hint that this, this is exactly what is happening here. The reason the crowd makes such an illogical and ridiculous and irrational response is not because there's a lack of evidence, not because there's an intellectual problem, but because, like Pharaoh, their hearts are hard. And as well as many of you know, sadly, this situation continues today that those who so vehemently reject the Christian faith will claim intellectual problems, will claim there's a, there's a lack of evidence, will claim that the Bible contradicts itself, this and that. But the reality is that there is a more fundamental issue. It is the hardness of the human heart. The human heart that, is, that, that rejects, that rebels against any notion of, of there being a God of there being a God who has a right to rule and reign over my life. And so the human heart rebels against that. See, the heart of the problem is that it is a problem of the heart. And so after Jesus refutes, Jesus now warns in verse 23, 26. Verse 24. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. And when it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. Now to our modern years, this is, I mean, this is a strange story. Uh, but the point 
is really quite straightforward. You need to bring to your mind an advertisement of a slimming centre. Right? And as all slimming centres go, there is a before and after picture. Right? And the after picture is always better than the before picture. I mean, if it's worse, then right, something is wrong, right? But, but in this story, the story that Jesus tells, it is the opposite. The after is worse than the before. Right? In the before photo, the man had only one evil spirit. In the after, he has seven plus one, eight, and even worse, right? That's what the uh, story tells us. So what is the problem? What is the problem? What's the problem? What, what could the man have done he, when he, the evil spirit first left him? What should he have done? What could he have done? Well, the devil, the evil spirit, has to be cast out. And what he should have done is to have invited the Holy Spirit in. That's the way to prevent the disastrous final condition from happening. When the first evil tenant left, the man should not have left his house empty. What he needs to do is to invite the Holy Spirit in. And as he tells this story, undoubtedly, some in the crowd would go, What? Are you kidding me? Invite the Holy Spirit in? Hey, do you know what you're talking about or not? I would, I would sooner be able to get the emperor to come into my house, eat my cupcakes and do my dishes for me, than to, than to have God's presence in me. Do you know what you're talking about? And Jesus would say, yes, just do the one thing needed. Come, sit at my feet here and receive my life-giving word. And then all you have to do is ask. Just, just ask. And the Holy Spirit will be given willingly and eagerly by the Heavenly Father. And this is why Jesus lovingly warns them. Because to this crowd, crowd number one, with the wrong response number one, in their present state of mind, do you think they will come and sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to his word? Of course not. Because, because, he, because they think that he is of the devil. Right? That's what they are accusing him of. He is of the devil. He is using the devil's power. Of course, they are not going to sit at his feet and listen to his life giving word. That's why Jesus is lovingly warning them. If you will not come to me, if you will not receive my word, how will you have the Holy Spirit in you? And without the Holy Spirit in you, without God's own presence in you, changing and transforming you, your final condition is going to be far worse. Far worse than where you are now. So he lovingly warns them that they need to see that their argument is illogical, irrational. They need to see who he is that they may come. If not, their final condition is going to be bad. And so that's the, the flow of the argument in these verses. And that's why the key verse is verse 28. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Let's look at crop number two with their wrong response number two. 
and it's recorded for us in verse 16. And wrong response number two are the people who say, people who did this, they, others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. They wanted to test him. Now, do you know that the descendants of these people are here with us today? The descendants of this, this uh, crowd which wanted to test Jesus, they are here with us today. You know where they are? They are in MOE. These people who want to keep testing and testing our children. What's behind this response? These people want more proof. They want more proof. They say, they say to Jesus, I will be prepared to believe in you. I will give you the honor and worship due to you as God. But first, you've got to satisfy all my criteria. First, you've got to answer satisfactory all my questions. And so Jesus refused them. Verse 29 to 32. And he says, in verse 29, As the crowds increased, Jesus said, This is a wicked generation. It asked for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. So you see, Jesus is uncompromising. He denounces this generation as wicked. And it is wicked because Jesus had already, already given them many signs, pointing to his identity as the Son of God, as the Savior of the world. They didn't need more signs. What they needed was to believe in the signs that have already been given. But nevertheless, Jesus says, one more. Right, one more will be given, and it is a sign of Jonah. And the question is, what is the sign of Jonah? Well, Jonah, as you know, was an Old Testament prophet that God told him, go and proclaim to the Ninevites. But because Jonah hated the Ninevites, because the Ninevites were the most cruel and wicked people uh, that he knew, Jonah went in the other direction. Uh, but God caught up with him, and Jonah was thrown overboard from his ship. Uh, and then this big fish swallows Jonah. And Jonah is in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then Jonah, in the belly of the fish, repents, prays to God, and the fish spits Jonah out, and Jonah goes into that great city, proclaims the word of God, and the whole country repents and believes. And so many people believe that Jonah's three days and three nights in the belly of the fish uh, corresponds to Jesus' own three days and three nights in the, the belly of the earth, where he is buried. And so as Jonah is spit out and has a resurrection experience, so it corresponds to Jesus' own rising from the dead out of the earth. And so in other words, the sign of Jonah is the death and raising to new life of Jesus. And so Jesus says that's the only sign that's going to be given to this generation. Like no other sign is going to be given. That's the only sign. That's what you have to focus on and uh, put your attention to. Now, to understand this even more clearly, now we take note that the people of Nineveh, they did not, they did not see, they did not see the sign. Because when that happened on the beach, there were no Ninevites there. Jonah had to go 
and then proclaim. And when he proclaimed, they could smell the fish smell, but they couldn't see the sign. They could only hear from Jonah's lips what God had done and the word that God had brought to them. They only heard as Jonah preached the sign to them. And so similarly, while there were many people who physically saw the death and resurrection of Jesus, there were many witnesses, but the vast majority of everyone else, 99% of everyone else, cannot see it. The sign comes to us and to them only as the word of God is proclaimed. And so the sign of Jonah, the only sign that's given to that generation and the only sign given to our generation is the proclamation, the preaching, the going out of the gospel, the proclamation of the death and rising again, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as uh, Phil Riken has written, how do we know that Jesus lived a perfect life on our behalf? How do we know for sure that God has accepted Christ's sacrifice for our sins? How do we know that Jesus has the power of eternal life? How do we know that we will live forever? The answer in each case is that God has raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the only sign that's going to be given. And the sign comes to us not by seeing, but by hearing. And Jesus continues in verse 31. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth and to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now one greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and now one greater than Jonah is here. Now why will the queen of the south, why will the men of Nineveh rise up at the last day and condemn this generation? Because they were given so much less. What they had in that time was so much less and yet they believed. And do you notice Jesus says, one greater than Jonah, one greater than Solomon is here. The queen and the men of Nineveh, they will rise up at the last day and then they will look at this generation and they will look at the people who have heard the gospel, heard about Jesus but refused to accept. They will look at them and they will say, you had this? You were told this? You, you heard the climax of God's salvation plan? You, you had all this and you didn't believe? Right is your judgment. Right is your condemnation, they will say. So after refuting, Jesus warns. And he warns them in this strange parable in verse 33 to 36. Look at it with me. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, he puts it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye 
is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are good, your whole body is also full of light. But when they are bad, your body also is full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be completely lighted, as when the light of a lamp shines on you. And most people after reading this will go, huh? What is he talking about? There's the lamp and then my eyes the lamp. What is Jesus talking about? First, first thing that would help us to understand is that this lamp is Jesus. The lamp is Jesus and the light refers to his teaching, his word going forth. Okay? And so, just as no one lights a lamp and then hides it, so also Jesus comes and his teaching is all out in the open. He's not hidden it. It's not uh, reserved for some spiritually elite type of people. Nothing is hidden. Everything is accessible. Right? If the people had Google then and they type in how to have eternal life, the first hit would be Jesus and his teaching. Okay? It's all out there in the open. So the lamb is Jesus and the light is his teaching. He then goes on to say that your eye okay, is the lamp of the body. Now, what does he mean? Well, it's quite simple actually. Because our eyes, our eyes are the only organs that are responsible for taking in and making use of the light that is available. Right? My nose, nice as it is, uh, cannot make use of light. Neither can my ears nor my hands. The only organ that can make use of light and enable the rest of my body to function, you know, enjoy a game of table tennis or enjoy the view, is my eye. And so he goes on to say, uh, if your eyes are good, then your whole body is good. Okay, so imagine two men in a room. Imagine them in a very dark room. One man has normal eyesight, the other one is blind. Okay, in a dark room, can, can any of the men see? No. Okay? Both can't see because it is pitch dark. But when the light comes on, only one man can see. The other man still is blind. For him, the, the world is still dark because his eyes are bad. When your eyes are good, your whole body is full of light. But when they are bad, your body is full of darkness. And so you see, Jesus is warning them. Jesus was shining on them with the clear, bright light of the truth of God's word. He wasn't hiding, he wasn't uh, being difficult to understand. He was shining with a clear light, radiant with God's glory. But they could not see it. The problem was with their eyes and not with him. The problem was that their eyes were bad. They could not perceive the radiant glory of the truth that was standing in front of them. Their bad eyes, in failing to perceive the truth, would lead to great darkness, great disaster for the rest of the body. Their whole lives, their eternal destiny would be affected. And so he's warning them, take care that you can see properly. The problem is not with me, but with your eyes. Take care that you see me for who I am. And so that's why, again, 
As I've said before and I say again, the key verse that Jesus is proclaiming is about true blessedness. In verse 28, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Now I hope that as we've looked at these verses, that's, that's something that we can see. Ah, yes, that's, that's a clear point arising from these verses. But some of you are thinking, okay, 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 all right. Yeah, I've been very patient. I've uh, listened to you work through this whole passage. But what's the application? Right, you see, most of us in this room, we're already Christian. Right? We, have, we have come to Jesus. We have sat at His feet. We have listened to His word. We have the Holy Spirit in us. So what's the application? Huh? It's the application... Um, don't neglect the quiet time in the morning. You know, if you have neglected, okay, you know, uh, blessed are those who hear the word of God. Okay, yes, yes. Um, New Year's resolution, uh, recommit myself, uh, look at God's word, pray in the morning, first thing I do. Uh, is, that, is that the application? Is the application also we should prioritize uh, studying the Bible in our small group? You know, um, don't have dinners during that day. Uh, try not to work late. Uh, prioritize going to Bible study and learning with other people God's word. Or it's application also, you know, make sure we come on Sunday mornings fresh. You know, don't watch soccer until so late. Unless your team is in the Champions League final. Now. Okay, then, okay, maybe that one time in your life you can do it. But all other times, don't, don't do something until so late and when you come on Sunday, you know, you're half asleep even though uh, you know, the, the, the preacher is doing his best, you're falling asleep, you know, that, that we are as awake and alert as humanly possible so that we can benefit with maximum uh, you know, capacity to hear and learn from God's word and is proclaimed. Is this application? Yes. Yes, 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 yes. But there's more. Okay? But there is much more. And Luke is trying to help us see that much more by what he records after these verses. And the last point on your outline, uh, those who don't hear. And it takes us all the way from verse 37 to 54, but you might be relieved to know that I will only be touching on the one point. And I hope that by doing that, uh, you can see how the rest applies as well. So you see, Luke's record of verse 37 to 54, his, his point in putting this section here is to show us, not just tell us, but show us in real, tangible, concrete ways what happens. What would happen? What would be the result of not? Not sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening and receiving his life-giving word. So let me read for us, starting from verse 37, and just the, the first few verses. So you see, it's on the same day that this happens, because verse 37 tells us, When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not wash first before the meal. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. 
you foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. So the Pharisee invites him in. And the Pharisees, they have this this, uh, rule about washing in a particular way before they eat. And all you mothers, you will say, yes, amen to the Pharisees. But they didn't do it because of germs. You see, our knowledge of germs is only about 100 years old. Right? Pharisees, these are people 2,000 years away. They, they didn't do this because they had a concept of germs. They did this because of ceremonial purity. But the thing to recognize is that the washing of hands is not something that the Bible commands. Right? The only, only notion of washing is when in the Old Testament, God tells the priests to wash in a certain way before performing the functions in the temple. Right? Can you see that that is a thousand years away from making sure you wash before every meal so that you're ceremonially clean, so that when you partake of the food, uh, you don't, you don't, you don't, uh, you're giving thanksgiving to God and all that. It is completely different. So what is happening is that this was a man-made a man-made religious conduct. And the Pharisees, they had a thousand and one of these rules. Why? Why would you have a thousand and one of these rules to the already hundreds that are there in the Bible? Why? Why would you do that? Because they honestly thought, they honestly thought that the keeping of these rules, so not just the rules here, but even going deeper, and more serious than what God uh, commanded that day. By doing all these things, they would, they would please God. And this is the point. That if we are not sincerely and consistently sitting at the feet of Jesus to hear and receive His life-giving word, then our religion, our, our Christianity, will also sink to this level. And examples from churches and Christians around us abound. Now, how, many, how many churches have split over whether there should be drums or electric guitar? Why would this why would these two things be the cause of people who are supposed to be united in Christ splitting? Now, if the reason was okay. Um, I'm from a generation where I don't really like the sound of drums uh, and I would prefer not to have it. Would you, in Christian love, um, you know, accede to my request? Maybe at other times you can have it, but when I'm here with my other friends, because we're not used to it, 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 it distracts us from worshipping God and listening. Because it does that, would you be kind enough out of Christian love not to have it? And then, the answer would be, yes, yes, we would be happy to serve you. But it would be, but instead it is, no, you don't see drums and electric guitar in the Bible. There's only what, a harp and lyre and whatever, only these things, God says, are suitable and appropriate for worshipping Him. Man-made rules, elevated to the level of Scripture. 
and other man-made rules of, of uh, not, not having sandals, cannot wear slippers into the congregation, uh, in, in, into church. Jesus wore sandals! You see, this is a true story that my student told me. He brought a friend, a newcomer, a person who was investigating uh, about Jesus, investing Christianity to his church. And just before the service, before the service started, he was you know, talking with his friend, as would be polite if you are someone who invited a guest to the service. And then the deacon, the deacon in front, turned around and said, Shh! Why cannot talk before the service? Where, where does it say you cannot talk and, and get to know your friend before the service starts? This same church, the church council had to meet and decide whether it's appropriate when newcomers come to the church and when they stand up and uh, introduce themselves, whether it's appropriate to clap after that. How did it come to this? Now, I have purposely spoken of examples that are, in a sense, outside our church. But we must ask ourselves, what are the man-made rules that we have here? The man-made rules that we have elevated to the level of Scripture or close to it. What are the man-made rules that we abide by, that we judge others by? See, the danger of all this is that it leads us to think that just because we are keeping our man-made rules, God is happy with us. Because it's so much easier, right? So much easier to measure whether externally I'm conforming, externally I'm obeying. It is, it is much too disconcerting. It is too scary to actually look honestly with the spotlight of God's word into our hearts. So much easier to judge externally. Okay, am I keeping this rule? Am I keeping this rule? Oh yes, I am. I must be okay. It's so much harder to actually look honestly with the help of God's word into the deep recesses of our hearts. So much easier, right, to be courteous to people at church, but then at home be rude to wife and children. Right, so much easier to give the right answers at Bible study about God's sovereignty, His absolute control in the world, but actually be in our hearts secretly resenting God because things are not working out the way I want them to. See, it's a danger of relating to God the wrong way. That we think our external conformity to some man-made rules makes Him happy. But if we are sitting at the feet of Jesus, if we are hearing, if we are really hearing His word, then we will realize that we cannot, we cannot by our own efforts please God by what we do. Because the standard is too high. Right, he says, right, how, the, 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 the guy asks him, how do I gain eternal life? Love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. 
love your neighbor as yourself. So, without explanation, uh, the people think they can do it. Like, without really thinking about the demands of it, sometimes we think we can do it. Sometimes we think just because I've done this or done this, hey, hey man, I'm meeting up to the standard. But Jesus blows it all away. The parable of the Good Samaritan. This is what love means. This is what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. And you have to do this consistently and continually with everyone around you. No one, no one can do that. But the good news of the life-giving word of Jesus is this. There is one. There is one who have loved, who has loved us that way, who has loved so self-sacrificially, so consistently, so continually, and that one is the Lord Jesus Christ when He was sent by the Father to come down, who lived a perfect life, who did love consistently and continually, who loved God with all His heart, who loved His neighbor as Himself, who loved us so much, loved God so much that He went to the cross. That though he was sinless, he bore our sin. He took God's wrath on our behalf. He was the one who has met God's standards, taken God's wrath for us. He is the one who has loved us. He is the one who has met and fulfilled the law on our behalf. So if we come to him and sit at his feet and and receive his life-giving word, Trusting in what he says and what he has done. That and that and that alone is what will make us right with God the Father. That and that alone is what will give us access to him. That and that alone is what will enable us to have the Holy Spirit in us. So friends, there's no need to pretend. There's no need to Prove to God or to the people around you that by some external show of spirituality or religiosity that we are better than we are. There's no need to pretend. It is by grace, because of what Jesus has done out of love for us, that we are God's people, that God is pleased and happy with us. But you see, friends, if we, if we understand this, if this, is, if this is a truth that we have taken to the very centre of our hearts, the very centre of our beings, then you know what it does. It makes us so grateful to God. It helps us see each other as needful and sinful human beings. And, and we see God has loved me this way. And we are empowered and enabled by that love to also begin to reach out to those around us in love. Only that. Only that would enable us to love more and more as the way Jesus loved and commanded us to do. Not some conformity to a man-made rule. And so as we close, as I was preparing this, the, the words of a song that I, as a young Christian, sang often came to my mind. Jesus, take me as I am. I can come no other way. May God help us.